0: to Jonah, everything seems a little muffled to me today, um, my allergies have been bothering me, when the, when the sun came out, and all the, the beauty and the warmth, all I was thinking was let it, let, it, let it rain, where are the clouds, let the pollen go away, so it's raining because of me, probably. Ah, uh, So we're in Jonah. Last week we began the book of Jonah. One thing I said is that Jonah is is like an onion. There are many layers to this book. Jonah is about God's sovereignty and how he uses creation to accomplish his purposes. It's about unbelievers coming to faith. It's about a rebellious prophet named Jonah. Now Jonah, he's this interesting prophet He's not like other prophets. Rather than obeying God like all the other prophets do, he disobeys God and does the exact opposite of what he wants them to do. God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach the gospel. Jonah says no. He goes in the opposite direction. See, the Ninevites are basically a terrorist nation, and Jonah does not believe they should have the opportunity to be saved. So Jonah has jumped on a boat uh, in order to escape doing God's will. And what we saw last week is that God's not going to let Jonah off the hook that easy. So God throws a storm at Jonah's plans, and now he's trapped on the sea with the sailors. And what we're going to see is that these storms that God brings into our lives are not some divine temper tantrum because God didn't get things to go his way, but they're an act of mercy. God is going to use the storm as a means of beginning to arrest Jonah's heart. And what we're also going to see is that Jonah uses this storm, or God uses this storm, in his sovereignty, and is going to use it for the good of the sailors. And so that's where we come in on this scene. We're on a boat, we have the sailors, we have Jonah, there's a giant storm, and they're trying to figure out, what do we do? And so if you have your Bibles, we're in chapter 1, I'm going to invite you to stand Uh, We stand here at the reading of God's Word. We do so because we believe God's Word comes uh, from God, inspired by Him with His full authority for the purpose of equipping and encouraging the saints. And so we stand as a way of honoring our God and King. Chapter 1, verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and let not, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let me pray. Our Father, we come to you now. Lord, we thank you for this text, and I pray that as we dig into it today, that your spirit gives us wisdom, gives us understanding, that we might see, God, how you use this storm, this rebellion of Jonah for the good of these sailors. That we would ultimately see how the death of Jonah brings about the salvation of these sailors, and Lord, how ultimately the story points us to you, to your son Jesus. God, may we see this may we be encouraged, may we be emboldened by this text, and may we desire to share the gospel more and more as well. God, give us fresh eyes today. Lord, be with me as I speak. May may allergies and other things not be a hindrance, but God, may your word go forth by the power of your Spirit. Change us today. Draw us close to you. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Um, so we're going to make our way kind of through the text. Um, several points that we'll walk our way through. Uh, number one, we see there is only one God and all humanity stands before him. Let me see how, show how we get there. The scene begins <clears throat> with the sailors realizing that this is no normal storm. They reckon the storm is a result of a God who is angry, and therefore they're going to cast lots to figure out who the guilty person is, which person made a god mad that has brought this storm upon them? And, and it just so happens that Jonah is the guilty one. Now the casting of lots would be like throwing dice, and, and they would be white and black. If it showed up black, then that would be, the, they, they decided the, the, the dice would show who the guilty person was. So as they threw the dice, they were white for everyone else, but for Jonah, they come up Black. Now in Proverbs 16, we read this. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so just even at the beginning here, and we've made comments last week, and we'll make comments as we go throughout this whole series, that God is in control of everything in this story. God is actually using Jonah's rebellion of going to bring salvation to these sailors. So as, as Jonah's running from God, disobeying God, God's not out of control here. For even the the casting of this dice is going to reveal to the sailors where the problem is coming from, and then, of course, what the solution will be. So in verse 8, the sailors bombard Jonah with a series of questions. What's your job? Where do you come from? What people do you belong to? Now, these are not questions of introduction. They're not actually interested in Jonah. Jonah. They're not wondering, hey, this could be a cool guy. Maybe we want to hang out with him. Uh, No, they're not introduction, but they're interrogation. Um, They're trying to figure out, at, at this time, people all believed in local deities. And so they're trying to figure out, where does this guy come from? What deity has he made mad? Because once we know that, we'll know how to appease this god. And so Jonah responds by playing the game Two truths and a lie. Have have you ever seen that game? You know what we're talking about? So he says, well, I'm a Hebrew. I I fear the Lord, Yahweh. and, And the Lord is the one who made the sea and the dry land, meaning all of creation. So which one is the lie? Obviously, he's not fearing God because he's running away from what God has called him to do. If he actually feared God, he'd be at Nineveh at this point, beginning to share the gospel. And so, apparently, the sailors have picked up on the fact that Yahweh, that Jonah has offended, this God of Israel, is no normal God. Because when you look at verse 10, we read, the men were exceedingly afraid. So all of a sudden, they go, oh, your God's the one who made the sea and the land, all of creation. And so we could actually reword their question, what is this that you've done by saying, if your God really is the creator of everything, why would you run from Him? What are you doing? So in verse 11, we see the storm has continued to grow in intensity. The ship is moaning under the crashing waves and and beginning to to splinter apart. So the sailors turn and say, we need to know what to do. What are we supposed to do? So, It's at this moment, I just want to pause and make sure we understand what's going here. For one, the storm represents God's anger. Jonah has rebelled against God's word. By rebelling against the word of God, you actually rebel against God himself. And so therefore, God is threatening to send Jonah, this ship, and all the sailors to the bottom of the sea because of Jonah's rebellion. Now you might ask, is that fair like would god really send these innocent sailors to the bottom of the sea for jonah's rebellion for jonah's sin? the answer is yes yes he would and the answer is no they're not innocent like we can't read this story and think Oh, Jonah, Jonah's guilty, the sailors are innocent, and they're, they just got caught up in his storm, and unfortunately, they're now going to suffer the same fate. They're not innocent. In fact, the Bible tells us that all, pe- all people are guilty before God. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says that we're all dead in our trespasses, um, in essence, the Bible says that we are born as, as spiritual zombies. We, we have no spiritual life in us. We do not desire to please God. We do not desire to love Him and to live for Him and to spread the gospel um, for Him. And because we are sinful, we read that we deserve judgment. And so, when someone says, and you may have heard this, or you may have read this, would God really send the innocent person on the other side of the world who has never heard the gospel, would He send them to hell? The answer is yes. Because there is no one innocent. And in Romans chapter 1, what we see is that God, in what we call general revelation, has revealed Himself to all mankind. Through the very creation, through the stars, through the sun, through the moon, through the trees, through all of creation, shows the design that there is a God. Now man suppresses this truth, rejects God, and we read that in Romans 1. But in Romans we are told that everyone knows that there is a God, but because of sin we reject that God. And so there is no innocent person. Some people think that that it's only upon hearing the gospel that then people become guilty. But if that was true, if only upon hearing the gospel, then did people understand that they were guilty before this God, then missions would be the most terrible idea possible. We should let people stay in their ignorance, shouldn't we? Which means Jesus was wrong in Matthew 28 when He said, Go make disciples, telling people about the gospel. We're not guilty because we hear the Gospel. We're guilty because we're born sinful. We're born rebellious against God. And so, this is why God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. They're guilty. They need the Gospel. This is why, this is why Nineveh's only hope is to hear the Gospel. This is why the sailors, their only hope is the Gospel. Jonah's help is the Gospel. Yours and my hope is the Gospel. The only hope of this world is to hear the gospel. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 10, I I love this passage, I think it's up here on the screen, verses 13 through 15, Paul says, and he's quoting Isaiah here, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then he says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? There's a problem, right? How do I call on someone I don't know about, that, that I don't believe? How are they to believe in Him if they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? you see the problem? People will be saved if they call on the Lord. The problem is, they need to hear. So who's going to go? And it ends as it is written. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Those who share the Gospel have beautiful feet because they're bringing hope to the world. They're bringing hope to people who are perishing. This is, why, this is why Ben stands up here a few moments ago and says we're looking at going to India and Thailand. Not because we're trying to get more miles on our credit card. Not because we just want to you know, get more stamps on the, on our passports. But it's because there are people in other parts of the world that have never heard the gospel. They're literally being born, living and dying and going to hell because they do not have the gospel. The only hope they have is by people going and sharing the gospel. Now, we surely do not think that we are the end game here, and by us going, it has solved the problem. But every church, every believer is to play their parts. so we want to go. And so we're saying, what does that look like for us here at Timberline? Next week, we'll have other people like Rose and Peggy will stand up here, and they will talk about Poland and Lebanon. If you want to join them, we encourage you to do that this summer. And the only way people are saved is if they hear the gospel. Now in case you're kind of struggling with the idea of this God as judge who sends people to hell who do not believe in Him, who rejects Him, don't forget the reason why Jonah is running. We'll hit this again in chapter 4. We hit it last week. Um, and, and the reminder is, is that Jonah is running from God because he knows how gracious he is and merciful he actually is he knows that if he actually goes to Nineveh to this terrorist nation I described kind of what they do last week um, if he brings the gospel to them if he tells them about God he knows how gracious God is and that he will save them that's who our God is he loves to save so there's people who say you know the God of the Old Testament just really angry and wrathful. We actually have a prophet who wants to run from doing God's will because of the opposite truth. That our God is so gracious, so loving, that He wants to see people come to know Him. An underlying theme in all of this book of Jonah is that God's sovereignty is saving people who are perishing. And we're going to see that today. And we'll see that in chapter 3 in two weeks when we look at Nineveh. But never forget. Our God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, the God of this book, loves to save. And so then what, what do we do? How are we to remove ourselves from, this wrath, from His wrath if we are all sinful? In verse 11, that's, that's what the sailors are literally asking. What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? So look at Jonah's response in verse 12. Pick me up Hurl me into the sea. Does that sound like a good response? Now think about it. If you're you're walking with someone right now and you're sharing the gospel with them, and they say, Man, what, what do I need to do? Is that our response? Well, throw someone overboard. Wouldn't we say repent? Believe in God? That's not what Jonah's thinking. In fact, nowhere in the book does he repent. It's a very interesting book. Nowhere in the book does he actually ask forgiveness to God. He doesn't say, hey, let, let, let us repent. He doesn't, say, um, he doesn't say anything about praying to God. He doesn't say that, that maybe we should turn the boat around and go back to Joppa. Drop me off so then I can go to Nineveh and do what God has called me to do. Jonah does not see repentance as an option. He's still determined not to go to Nineveh. He's probably thinking, okay God, I get it. The storm's from you. Obviously. You're not going to let me get to Tarshish. You're probably not going to let me off this boat without going back to Nineveh. Fine. I'll die. I'll die. And they still won't hear the gospel. That's probably where his line of thought is right now. He's incredibly hard-hearted. But just... To remind you, last week, as we said, we're also to see ourselves in Jonah. This is us apart from the gospel. And this is us when sin begins to, to come into our life, even now as Christians. If we begin to entertain sin and begin to play with it, it will create hardness within our heart where we will seek to disobey God. But coming back, he absolutely refuses to submit to God. He has no love for people outside of Israel. He's a racist. Now, Jonah may be thinking about the good of the sailors. He might have that at some level in his thought. He might be thinking, okay, if I die, at least these guys will be saved. I'll give that maybe, and if so, it's probably a little bit. And the reason I say it's a little bit is because as we'll progress through the book, in chapter 4, we're going to see, well, even in chapter 3, that Jonah has no desire, no love in sharing the gospel with people outside of Israel. And so I don't think at this moment, all of a sudden, he has this altruistic act going, okay, guys, I'm really sorry I got you in this, you know. Throw me over, it'll be good for you. It might be there a little bit, but I definitely do not think that is a primary motive. I think his main motive is he does not want to do God's will. Therefore, death by sea is the best option. Now, the irony is, the irony is the sailors don't want to throw him overboard. They don't want to kill a man who belongs to such a powerful God. They don't want to offend this God. The sailors actually fear God more than Jonah does. The sailors also seem to have more love For people outside their tribe than Jonah does. Now we've already seen, we've already said the clear teaching of Scripture is that all of mankind is sinful. But what we learn here is that just because we are sinful, it does not mean that everyone is as evil as we can be. And we call that common grace. And we see that in Scripture. Common grace is God's givenness God's goodness given to all people, whether they belong to him or not. It's because of common grace. It rains on the righteous and the wicked. It's because of common grace. The sun brings warmth to all people. It's because of common grace. People who do not know the gospel can be kind and loving. And what we see here is that sometimes unbelievers are more kind and loving than believers are. Have you ever noticed that? That's a strange phenomenon that really should not exist. But because of God's common grace... There are times we run into people who are not believers, but they're incredibly loving and sacrificial. It's because of common grace that unbelievers will help the poor and try to put an end to world hunger. It's because of common grace we do not all act as evil as we can be. And that's important to remember. That's why we can find good in things in culture. That's why we can praise things in in our country, here in America. And why when unbelievers do good things, we can come alongside and rally behind them and lift them up. Because there's things that they do that are very, very good. Which is an act of God's common grace on all of mankind. Now the problem is, Because of common grace, we often do not think that we are as sinful as the Bible says we are. We think that we're good. We easily compare ourselves with other people, and we say, I'm not as bad as that guy. And honestly, if we look, it usually doesn't take us too far, or too much effort, to find someone who usually acts more sinful than we do, or at least as we think, Right? Like, it doesn't take much. If you're having a hard time finding someone, you can go on the internet quite quickly and probably type in a few keywords, and you'll find people who have done quite horrible things. Um, we can easily begin to think that, oh, well, because I'm not like that, I must be good. And therefore, I probably can please God. And inevitably, inevitably we begin to think that at least some people are worthy of salvation. Now, Matthew Barrett, a theologian and author, he writes this. It's this a, a, kind of a long quote. Blinded by sin, we struggle to understand the magnitude of our offense. Because we look at our sin and think it is of little significance. We make light of our sin. But that is because we judge it over against other sinners. Thinking, well, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. It's not until we stand in the heavenly courtroom, as Isaiah has done, beholding the infinite holiness of God, that we cry out, woe is me. God does not hold up our sin against the sin of others, but against the blinding light of his infinite perfection. Hear this, compared to God's infinite glory and holiness, we are as black as tar, every one of us. Your sins may be socially more acceptable than other people's, but our sins, because of our sins, we all stand guilty before the Almighty God. So, to come back to the question if we're sinful and under God's wrath, what can we do? That's what the sailors want to know. What is it that we do? That's the question that, that we beg to, to ask every day. What is it that we do if we are sinful under the wrath of God? 1 verse 5 we saw the sailors um, begin to throw the cargo overboard. As the waves were coming upon the ship, they said, we've got to lighten the boat. Let's throw the cargo overboard. Now in verse 13, we see, no, Jonah, we're not going to throw you over. We got this. We're going to row extra hard. And so they turn to their self-efforts, and they're going to work as hard as they can, rowing and doing everything they can to get the ship back to dry land. But what we see is that there is no escaping the wrath of God. Eventually, the, the sailors give up and say, There is no fighting this. We cannot win. And that's our next point that there is no work man can do, can, man can perform to merit God's favor. Hear this you and I, we have no strength on our own to save ourselves. To think otherwise is like to try to swim. Um, up a waterfall it's impossible now perhaps you're here today and you're checking out christianity know this that if the bible is true and we, we believe it is then our only hope of salvation is through the grace of jesus christ who's died on the cross for us throughout the god's word we're faced with the reality that we are not good enough we are not strong enough we are not smart enough there is nothing you or i can do to save ourselves it's the reality of the word, is that we cannot get out from God's wrath by our own efforts. So what is our hope? The next point is our, only through the death of a substitute can we be saved. So in verse 14, we see the sailors have come to the conclusion that they cannot save themselves, so they cry out, Lord. Now notice, when you read the word, Lord, And the word Lord is in all capitals in your Bibles. It's the word Yahweh. That's the covenant name given to Israel. It's God's name given to Israel showing relationship between Him and His people. So the sailors are now using the special name that God has given His people to have and they're using that now as they call upon God. So they're saying Yahweh and they're going Uh, To cry out and say, O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Yahweh, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they are completely turning from any other deity at this moment. They've realized no other God has been able to help them. No self-effort. They're only focusing on one God. They're using God's covenantal name. And then they pick Jonah up, and they hurl him over the side of the boat. In verse 15, we read that instantly, the storm stops raging. The winds die down, the waves calm down, and there's silence, there's peace. The waters have become like glass, like that kind that that you love to water ski on, if you've ever water skied. Now, just imagine the eerie silence that had to be on that ship at that moment. I mean, you go from storm, from the creaking and cracking of the boat, the moaning of the, of, the, of the sails, to absolutely nothing. So what do the sailors do? Verse 16. They feared the Lord. They offered sacrifices and vows to Him. Notice, they fear the Lord exceedingly. What does that tell you? They're more afraid now than when they were in the storm. You get that? The storm's gone. What are they afraid of now? Yahweh. When we talk to this God, He has the power to calm everything at a moment. They've never worshipped such a God. They've never known such a God. They've never been in the presence of such a God. And seen such power. So now they're in great fear and reverence, and so they make sacrifices and vows. You know, it's important to see these sacrifices and these prayers and these vows, they come after the storm, not before the storm. If it's before the storm, it could easily be like a foxhole prayer, right? Like we're in the foxhole. God, if you get me out of this, then and then we just fill it out, like I'll do this whole list of things, which we don't really mean, but we're just saying anything we can to get out of the storm, right? But they're no longer in the storm. They're out of the storm. And they just simply bow and praise this God and make sacrifices and vows to Him. They're worshiping the true God. They've experienced God's grace. God has used Jonah's rebellion to save these sailors. The irony in all of this is that Jonah ran from God because he didn't want to give the gospel to to pagans, to to those outside of Israel. And now, those outside of Israel, on a boat, have come to salvation in spite of his rebellion. Now there's something we need to see here. By Jonah's death, God's wrath was satisfied and and the sailors came to salvation. That's what we're to see. When we see the giving of sacrifices, the making of vows... That is is terminology used in God's word for they are worshiping now the one true God. They've turned from their ways. They've now experienced salvation. The sailors were saved through the substitutionary death of a prophet. Jonah was thrown overboard taking the wrath of God so the sailors could be saved. Now, the reason this is so significant is because of what Jesus says about it in the New Testament. So let me read Matthew chapter 12. I think this is on the screen. Matthew twelve thirty eight. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, talking back to Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. They're saying, Prove. Prove to us who you are. greater than Jonah is here see Jonah points us to a much greater substitute that's our point Jonah points us to a much greater substitute he points us to Jesus Christ in fact the stories of Jesus and Jonah are very similar both are prophets from Galilee both were in a tomb for three days now next week we'll see how Jonah entered the jaws of a fish but but Jesus entered the jaws of, of the grave Both rose from the dead. Jonah was vomited out, and Jesus actually rose from the grave three days later. Both brought salvation to others through their death and resurrection. They're very similar in many ways. Jonah very clearly is a shadow of Jesus, the reality. But while Jesus and Jonah are similar, there's also great differences. Jesus perfectly obeyed God. He was sinless. He was not running from God like Jonah was. Jesus, for the joy set before him, willingly died for the good of others, whereas Jonah's death was an act of rebellion. Jesus actually rose from the dead, conquering sin, death, and Satan. Jonah was more vomited out by God's command, which is more disgusting. Jesus' death did not bring about temporary relief from a storm, but brought eternal relief from God's wrath for all who will believe. And so how is it then that Jesus was able to satisfy all of God's wrath? It's because he's not just a man, but he's the God man. He's the son of God. In fact, in the New Testament, we read of another story where some guys are on a boat and they get caught in a storm and they all start freaking out. And just like Jonah, Jesus had fallen asleep. So the disciples come to Jesus and they wake him up and they say, don't you care that we're dying? Which is very similar to the captain, which we saw last week, comes to Jonah and wakes him up. What are you doing sleeping? But when Jesus wakes up, he stands and he simply says, peace, be still, and instantly at his voice, the waves and the winds die down. Now why? Why? Because Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of God, the Creator. See, it took Jesus bo- being both God and man, so that he'd come to earth and die on a cross as our substitute, so he could actually stand in your place in my place, but only because He's God could he actually absorb the full wrath of God that we deserve. See, other religions? are all about what we must do to earn salvation. Christianity is about God sending His Son to do what we could not do. See, Jesus became like us so that by faith in Him, we could become like Him. Hear this. A God who sacrifices Himself for the good of others is a God we can trust and love. There is no other religion where you have the God who sacrifices Himself for His creation. But in Christianity, we have God sends His Son as a substitute so that we could be saved. That's a God we can trust. He says, you can't come to me, so I come to you, and I will make that possible. This is the Gospel. This is what our neighbors need to hear in Thurston County. It's what people in India, in Lebanon, in Thailand, in Poland, and so many other parts of the world need to hear. They will not be saved because we feed the poor and perform other social justice acts. Now, I'm not saying we should not do things like that. Don't hear that. I'm not saying that we should not, in very uh, helpful ways, come alongside um, those who are hurting and poor and do acts of kindness for them. We should be known for our love, but the most loving thing we can do is to actually give the gospel because it's only through evangelism, the verbal proclamation that God has sent his son to be our substitute that people can be forgiven. It's only through that our our actions are good. They are good, they are necessary. There a way we demonstrate our faith, but our actions do not communicate a substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on a cross, who then three days later rose again. They can't perform that. That's what our words are for. It's only through the giving of the gospel can people be saved. An Englishman give a I read this illustration. I'd heard it before, and I came across it again the other day. An Englishman bought a a Royals Royce. I feel like I'm having a hard time talking because of allergies today. Like Everything in my head sounds very, very different. Do you know when that happens? Everything's very different. Okay, so there's a guy, an Englishman, he he buys a Royals Royce. And it's advertised as the car that will never break down. So he drives it, and after a long time driving, and he's far away from everyone, it actually breaks down. So he calls Royals Royce and says, hey, the car you sold me has broke down. Well, shortly thereafter, a helicopter actually arrives with the mechanic on board. They come, he fixes the car, gets the man going back on his way. Now, about three weeks later, the man has been waiting to see this bill that's going to come. And imagine, it's kind of steep, you know, with the helicopter bill and everything. And he doesn't receive anything, so he calls Rolls-Royce, and he's like, hey, I had my car break down, and you guys came and fixed it. I I didn't get a bill. I just want to take care of it. I just kind of want to be done with it. I keep thinking about it. And the man looks at his records, and he says, Sir, we have absolutely no record of anything ever going wrong with your vehicle. When we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that He died on the cross and rose again three days later, and we by faith trust in Him, his blood is what washes us clean. And so that just as Rolls Roy says to the man, our Father now says to us, I have no record of any wrong. Because Jesus came as the perfect substitute and died in your place and took the entire wrath of God that you and I deserved. So that now we stand righteous before God. Not because of who we are. Not because of what we've done. Everything is on the basis of Jesus Christ and what He has done for us. This is the message that we have. This is the message that we've been entrusted with so that with great joy and with great honor, we get to share it with others. If we remain quiet, We're really no different than Jonah asleep on the boat while the sailors are scurrying around trying to figure out what are we supposed to do. Hear this, the world is anxious. People are looking for meaning. They're looking for purpose and they will spend everything they have to achieve it. They will give everything looking for hope. We have the hope of the world we have the gospel that will set their hearts and their minds and their souls at peace we have the hope of the world that if they believe they're washed clean and the good news is it's free they don't have to earn it there's nothing they need to do but simply trust in it now think about this if the story of jonah is a shadow of the gospel of jesus christ meaning it's pointing to it it's not the same it's lesser just as when the sun um, begins to rise and you see shadows it points to you of a greater reality the shadow of a tree is not as great as the tree if you run into the shadow it doesn't hurt right try it. it doesn't hurt you run into the tree the reality you will feel the reality so jonah Is the shadow pointing to the reality? And if what we see in the Bible is that the shadow was used by God's grace to bring salvation to the sailors, bring salvation to Nineveh, what do you think is going to happen when we share the reality today of Jesus Christ? When we bring forth the very brilliance of God's glory in the face of Jesus? Do you see the greater When we bring forth the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's not a shadow. It's what everything in the Bible has been pointing towards. And so when we do so, we have great confidence that God will save. Now, we don't know who He will save, when He will save, how He will save. But we know there will be people saved. That is the confidence that we have as we go forth. How much more Will people be saved when they see and when they hear of the gospel of Jesus Christ as our perfect substitute? So I want to close just three things. One, if you've not trusted in Jesus, I urge you to do so today. If you're here and you're checking this out or or you've been apart for a long time and, and maybe you're here and you've been wrestling with things and you've been striving like the sailors have, trying to do things on your own. Or maybe you're like the sailors, and you got caught up in a storm of someone else, which has now brought you here, and God is using all of those circumstances in your life so that you would hear the gospel and believe today. I encourage you to believe the gospel. to Trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Now, if you are a believer, then, I want to ask you to think of someone God has placed in your life who you know needs the gospel. Think local. Who's in your life that you know needs the gospel? I want you, I encourage you, we have spots at the bottom of your uh, kind of worship guide there where you can respond. I, I encourage you, write down the name. Write down whoever just God places on your heart. This person needs the gospel. And then I just want to ask you, what's keeping you from sharing the gospel from him? Remember, our God loves to save. He loves to save. He's full of grace and mercy and steadfast love. I encourage you to go to that person this week and say, hey, can I, share to you, can I share with you about Jesus Christ? Now, I know that sounds scary, and it sounds like, man, how am I actually supposed to do that? But I encourage you, we have the reality that we're sharing, the gospel of Jesus, not even a shadow how great that was. Let us go with boldness. Let us go with joy. Let us go with hope and the confidence that we see our God loves to save. Now, I make no promises. The Scripture makes no promise that every person that you share the gospel will will with believe. But I, I think we're called to go because Jesus has called us to. And if we've tasted this joy, if we've tasted this gospel, if we know that there is hope in Jesus alone, How could we not share him? And so I ask you, who has God placed you? What has kept you? And share the gospel this week. Just put it all on the line. It's it's eternity that's at stake. And share the gospel and let the chips fall where they will. So that's two things now. Number three, Last question. This is directed towards if you're a believer. Are you willing to go? I think think we're supposed to wrestle with that here in Jonah. Are you willing to go? If God calls you, are you willing to go? If he calls you to leave Thurston County, maybe another part of the United States, Chris has talked a lot about Utah and it's, it's an entirely unreached area in many ways there. Or maybe it's to Lebanon, India, Thailand. Maybe it's to other parts that we don't, haven't even thought about yet. Are you willing? And wrestle with that. Don't give, don't give the Jesus answer. Of course I'm willing to go, Jesus, wherever you want me to. Like, actually think about it. The fact that you probably haven't gone, or, and if you've never gone on a mission trip, might be an indicator that maybe you're not. I just throw that out there because I think most people within church today haven't really wrestled with it. They kind of think that if we're supposed to go, God will bring neon lights and force us to go. And that's cool when that happens, but I don't think it's always like that. I ask you, are, are you willing to go? Are you willing to give up all that God has given us here in wherever you live? To go to other parts of the world, to give the gospel that need to hear of the substitutionary death of Jesus. If they do not hear that message, they will not go to heaven. One way to wrestle with that is will you be willing to go short-term mission? Will you be willing just to go for a short mission of a week of 10 days or two weeks, maybe a month or several months? We can find many types of trips like that. And just simply begin to go, God, are are you doing anything in me? God, would you have me go? I just ask you to wrestle with that. Now, maybe you're saying, look, I I know because of certain reasons I'm not able to. And there are many other ways that we can partner with with overseas missions through prayer, through finances. There's many, many ways. The important thing is, is how are we going or how are we supporting? And it's not by default we should all go in the support mode. Some of us, he's actually calling to go. And so I just simply urge you, will you wrestle with that? And so what I, what I really want you to do is, is write out a whole prayer, and I encourage you to do that later today. Just take time, just write out a prayer about who you're praying for and about would you be willing to go. And if you're not willing to go, go. God, I'm not willing to go. I do not want to go. God, I think that's a problem. I ask that you would change my heart. Maybe that's where you're at today. So just ask forgiveness for that and just see what God will do. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask the uh, the men to come forward and we'll take communion and the worship team to come up also. Our Father, we come to you now. God, I thank you for this message of Jonah that we see through the substitutionary death of a prophet that there is salvation. And God, how sweet it is that that actually points us to the much greater prophet, the perfect substitutionary prophet, Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that you have sent your son. God, may we, may we, know, may we know your son Jesus today. I pray that everyone here has trusted in you, and if they have not, I pray that we will. Lord, and I pray, may we go out this week in boldness, not because of who we are, but because of who you are. You are a God full of grace and mercy and steadfast love, and you love to say, may we just share the gospel. And God, I pray that you will send us. I pray, I pray that you will use Timberline as a great sending church for short and long-term missions. Because, God, there is nothing else worth sacrificing for than your gospel. God, we thank you. In your name, Jesus. Amen.